0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come together and study. And we would ask that your Spirit would be with us today, that our minds can be enlightened, we can come to know you, and we can experience your presence this morning. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number three in our quarterly discipleship. And the lesson title this week is, Called to Discipleship by Jesus. Called to Discipleship by Jesus. And if somebody would read for us the memory text there, i appreciate that.
1: Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen.
0: And one of my favorite passages, I I love that and I love to to explore that and the meaning that people hold for that text. I I went and looked on uh, Wikipedia, uh, faith, and and I I put that in the notes. And here's the the definition of faith from Wikipedia. It says, To believe without reason, (laughs) believing impulsively, or believing based upon social tradition or personal hopes. In either case, faith is based upon the interpretation of the intangible feelings and emotions instead of the physical tangible and is primarily associated with religion in modern times. According to the Bible, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. How do you like that definition? It's
1: pretty
2: accurate.
0: Yeah. Pretty accurate, he says. Accurate. We haven't uh, vote for accuracy. Accuracy the-
3: in most explanations and.
0: Okay, so pretty accurate about what the world thinks of, of faith. Okay, all right, it's pretty accurate definition of what most people think of faith. Do you think that is an is a biblically correct understanding of faith? No, right. Yeah, man. Well, for, maybe we should just take a moment and say, why do you think if it's not correct from the Bible, so many people think it?
2: Because
0: they don't know the Bible. Oh, that's a good. <laughs> because they don't know the Bible. Okay, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? No, no, no. That's right. you
2: can't take one text.
0: What's the danger in believing based on the intangible emotions and feelings rather than the tangible facts and evidence? What's the danger? It's the
1: devil's technique.
0: Well, James chapter 1 says that no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Our feelings can lead us into temptation and the devil would love to, to confuse our minds with our feelings rather than having us look at facts and evidence. Um, does, does God want us to believe without evidence? No. And if God wanted intelligent creatures to believe without evidence, wouldn't he have just simply said in the very beginning, Lucifer's is wrong, I'm right, Have faith. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, right? God says it, then I believe it. So and, and we see the bumper stickers that support that theory. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Don't ask questions. Um, but Isaiah 118 says... Reason. Come, let us, reason. Let, us reason. let us reason together. Though your sins are a scarlet, but white like snow, the red like crimson, are made like wool. You see the connection between reasoning things out and the transformation of our lives. They're, they're connected here. God wants us to reason. And the central issue in the great controversy is?
1: God's character.
0: God's character, whether you can trust him or not. And so, those of you who are married, just imagine that someone has come to your spouse and told your spouse lies about you. And your spouse believes those lies and no longer trusts you. But you are 100% absolutely, totally innocent. It's just all falsehood. Would you want to approach your spouse with something that said, don't consider any evidence. Don't consider my character and how I've treated you over the years. Don't investigate the allegations. Don't look for truth or facts. Just go on how you feel. Which do you think is right? Would you want to do that for, with your spouse? Or would you just beg them to look for the truth and evidence? Consider the facts. Yes. And so, in this controversy between Christ and Satan, who has all the truth supporting them? And Satan has none. And so, you see, this strategy, this idea, he's woven into our minds that people have actually surrendered thinking, surrendered reason, surrendered pursuit of truth for feelings. And they think that they have a spiritual experience. Hmm. Now, God has gone to great lengths to present this to us, to give us the evidence. Uh, I, I want to know, if, if my theory is correct, is there evidence along our lessons today with discipleship and so forth and their belief in God and, and His interactions with the disciples that would support my contention that we're supposed to look look for the facts and evidence to base our faith? Any evidence in that whole thing? Well, John one thirty-five to 35-39. Um, John the Baptist is preaching. John the Baptist uh, sees Jesus and proclaims him to be the the Lamb of God. And two of John the Baptist's disciples begin following Jesus and ask Jesus, say, where are you staying? And Jesus said, he declared to them his mission, or he said, come and see. Follow me and you will see. Well, follow and see means what? Look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. does not that what that means? Mm-hmm. Come check it out. How about when Philip, Andrew, and Peter, this is John 1, 44-46, uh, went and uh, found Nathaniel and Philip and told them, we have found the one Moses has talked about uh, from Nazareth, and can anything good come from Nazareth? And they said, "Come and come and see. Don't believe it. Don't take it on my word. Don't just have faith because I said so. <clears throat> come and check it out. Come see. Check the evidence for yourself. When John the Baptist was in prison, John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask and inquire of Christ. Are you the one? Or we, should we expect someone else? What did Christ say to John the Baptist's disciples? What did he tell them? Did he declare, I'm the one. Go tell him, yes, you can rest assured I'm the one. Is that what he did Did he declare it? What did he do? Go and tell him what you've seen. Go and tell him what you've seen. And what have you seen? Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, you don't have to take my word for it. Look at the evidence. The evidence reveals who I am, how I live, how I conduct myself. And then uh, the disciples... On the, in all this evidence, there's more evidence, but I'm just sticking with our lesson, discipleship evidence right now. <clears throat> Lots of other evidence support this. But the disciples on the road to Emmaus, after the uh, crucifixion, there were two disciples walking along. And Christ began to walk with them. And they were very discouraged. And Christ revealed himself in glory and declared himself to be the Messiah? Or did he take them through the evidences of the scripture that were filled in his life? Yeah. And and there's a different type of thinking going on here, and I want to emphasize this. Um, I was reading in the book Education this morning that much of education is misdirected toward memorization. I don't know if you've read that. And that the memorization, that, 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 that education is directed toward getting kids to remember facts, facts, data, data, fill the memory, fill the memory, fill the memory. But this actually damages the mind and teaches people to become non-thinkers. Bypasses reasoning. Bypasses reasoning and gets people simply to accept other people's position and believe things based on tradition rather than learning how to think and reason and weigh the good from the bad and discern the right from the wrong.
3: And that what the first two years of med school are all about. (laughs) Your handful of memory.
0: Um, I I don't know. I don't know that that's the case. My experience in med school education was a little different than that. Mm. It was much. uh, There was certainly a lot of data we had to learn, but it was always under the context of understanding the reasons for it. Mm. Yeah.
2: The danger comes of not reasoning from cause to effect.
0: Right, exactly. Not reasoning from cause to effect. That's exactly the point. Do we do that in church education with kids? Absolutely. Memory verse, the kid comes home to mom and cites the memory verse, and mom or dad says, now what does that mean? I don't have to know that. I just have to remember it to get my gold star. Right? (laughs) Just have to recite it to get the star. We don't have to explain, okay, what does it mean? How does it apply to my life? Do you see how we bypass?" And I think much of it, and I know in my upbringing, there was a lot of that that went on um, i don 't know something about my brain kind of resisted that, and I, I asked questions anyway and got in trouble i mean seriously question ask kids that ask questions at school can get in trouble, did you know that? <laughs>
3: Yeah, <laughs> The nail that sticks his head out.
0: Yeah, it's like it's hammered down. That's right. Yeah, but don't you think we should encourage kids to ask questions? In worship time at home, shouldn't we encourage our kids to ask questions? Well, well mommy, daddy, why, why, why did Jesus have to give his blood? Shouldn't we be able to answer those questions? Well, because the Bible says so. Well, why can't I go swimming on Sabbath? What? Because what? <laughs> Why can't I eat mustard? You know, shouldn't there be explanations for all the things we do? Shouldn't we teach our children and explain to them reasons for everything? Now, it's true. All children may not understand. They may not be at an appropriate stage of development. Brush your teeth. Why? Well, we may explain it, they may not understand. You may have to say, because I said so at a certain age. But isn't there some expectation as they grow, you're explaining reasons behind things? Getting them to think for themselves. Isn't that part of the growing up process? Isn't that what God is trying to do with each of us? He gives us rules when we're spiritual infants, and he's trying to explain, to get us to understand, so that he never has to give us rules again. I mean, the goal of parenting, as I understand it, is to one day parent your child to the point that they don't need you to parent them anymore. Yes. Isn't that the goal? that they can think and reason and make healthy choices and live mature and, re- and responsible lives without any oversight from you. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that God, what God is trying to do for us? To raise us to the point that we get those fruits of the Spirit, and the last fruit of the Spirit is Self-for-dom. self-governance, self-control, that we've grown up to be beings that can live freely in His universe without Him having to stand over us every moment telling us what to do. That's the goal of the spiritual journey. All right, Sunday's lesson. Um, somebody read number one there at the top.
1: How did John the Baptist help set the stage for the call of these first disciples? From what John did, what can we learn for ourselves and for our mission as a people?
0: And John, of course, quoted when they asked him, What are you doing? Who are you? Who are you? Why are you here? You're not Elijah. You're not the one to come. You're not the Messiah. What are you doing? And he quoted out of Isaiah, remember, the prophecy, a voice of one calling... Uh, In the desert, to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged place plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When you think about that as his mission, um, what do you understand his mission to be? Making the way for the Lord. Knocking down the, the high places and filling in the low places.
2: He was a base so Christ could be exalted.
0: He was a base so Christ could be exalted. What does that mean? Yes.
3: He spoke out against individual sins. I mean, that's why he was killed. Is he was very pointed. And, um, you know, we we like to speak in generalities in, in what we do and what other people do, but in specifics. He preached against sin, specific sins. He pre you know, and his, his discussion with those who came to question him were not very maybe as tactful as we would perceive us to be desirable in our career.
0: And particularly though, who was the target of his speaking out? Was it really just the general populace, or was there a specific focus of who he was targeting?
3: Jewish leadership.
0: And the Jewish leadership was just governmental leadership or spiritual leadership? They were were both, but primarily his concern was with... Now, he did did hit Herod up with his his wife, but his primary concern was with the misrepresentation of God that were closing the hearts of the people so they were unprepared to meet the Messiah. Wasn't that his primary concern? Mm-hmm. To deal with things that were shutting the door, the avenues to people's hearts and minds for the coming Messiah. He wanted to open the doors of hearts and minds. And so you're right, he was very pointed. But he wasn't pointed at every individual person who was coming, who was, who was coming for the truth. He was pointed at the, the obstructions that were keeping people away from seeking God and the false systems that were giving false security had the system degraded to the point that it no longer really revealed the truth about God.
3: The majority of people though, that he convicted of sin and baptized were probably the common people.
0: Yeah, convicted of sin, yes. No, there's no question. His message was one of repentance. And they, and the common people were convicted that this man is speaking prophecy. And by the way, there was some concern about how he presented himself and, and what would a John the Baptist look like today. You know, he presented himself dressed in the camel hair, garb, and leather belt, and unshaven face, and and uncut hair. The reason he did that is that was the uniform of a prophet. See, today you wouldn't dress like that to be a John the Baptist. In order to, to stand up and be recognized just by glance as a prophet, you dress the way John the Baptist did okay today if you want to be recognized at a glance as a soldier you put on a military uniform and you don't even have to say anything people just know oh there's a there's a soldier or there's a police officer if he's in uniform you just recognize by the dress immediately who they are john the baptist dressed to be recognized by everybody this is someone purporting to be representing himself as a prophet let's see what he's got to say Okay, and I understand there were different types of prophets, and, and, and John the Baptist was a prophet that was bringing reformation. Uh, there were the prophets that, that were designed to bring theological education uh, in the schools of the prophets, and then there were the prophets that were designed to bring messages from God to reform the people. And John the Baptist dressed like one of those, so people would say, hey... This is an unusual experience. The, The prophets from the schools of the prophets were a common sight. The prophets like John the Baptist were an unusual sight. And that's why the people were coming out to hear him, because he put himself out there to be recognized as someone that is unusual. It might happen once in a lifetime, if that so anyway, I just put that as an aside so we wouldn't think, well, if we want to be a John the Baptist today, we need to go dress in you know, camel hair garb and a leather thing and not shave and stand out on the street corner in Chattanooga you know, shouting at people or in the Times Square as they go by. If you do that, they'll think you're a nut. Okay? That's not how we represent ourselves to represent God faithfully in society today. So the question then is, so we understand what John was doing. He was trying to draw people's attention, which worked. They recognized him for what he purported to be, and they came and listened. And then he had a message from God that resulted in their hearts being convicted and hearts being opened to a new way, and they were being baptized looking for the one to come. This is out of Zaref, Ages, 135. Anciently, when a king journeyed through the less frequently parts of the dominion, a company of men was sent ahead of the royal chariots to level, level the steep places and fill up the hollows that the king might travel in safety and without hindrance. This custom is employed by the prophet to illustrate the work of the gospel. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low. When the Spirit of God, with its marvelous awakening powers, touches the soul, it abases human pride. Worldly pleasure and position and power seem to be worthless. Imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God are cast down. Every thought is brought into captivity and in obedience to Christ. Then humility and self-sacrifice self-sacrificing love, so little valued among men, are exalted as a loan of worth. This is the work of the gospel which John's message was a part. So what was he casting down? Yeah, He was casting down the, the pride, the arrogance in our hearts, the selfishness, and trying to exalt the humility of, of Christ and God's methods of self-sacrificing love. So then the question, how does this apply to God's last day people in the second advent? Does it apply? Is there any application to us? this prophecy of isaiah are we to be going out making way as john the baptist was making way for the first advent is god looking for a people to make way for his second advent what is the wilderness then that maybe is in the prophecy a voice crying in the wilderness what is the wilderness we are to be crying in dryness pardon dryness 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 for what There's a spiritual metaphor there. Jesus Jesus said to the woman at the well, If you ask for the water that I give, the water of life, okay? So there's a dryness out there. What is the wilderness we are to be crying in? The world around us, okay? The world around us, okay? The world around us, particularly the wilderness of of the knowledge of God? Yeah. Yeah? Could the voice of the last day be a people who are proclaiming the truth about God's character as represented in Christ? Mm. this is at our first selected messages page 410 showing you what the founders of our church believed about this calling John was called to do a special work he was to prepare the way of the Lord to make straight his paths the Lord did not send him to the school of the prophets and rabbis he took him away from the assemblies of the men to the desert that he might learn of nature and nature's God God did not desire him to have the mold of the priests and the rulers why do you think that was? What was the mold of the priests and the rulers? What kind of God did they worship? Yeah, a God that would cheat people when they came to the temple, remember? A God that would exploit, extort people. A God who would rather, a God who would be offended that on the Sabbath day when Christ stands up and says, what does our law permit? To do good on the Sabbath or to do evil on the Sabbath? To save life or to take life? Remember? The man with the withered arm? And what did they do? What, how did they answer that question? They didn't. And so Christ said, Stretch out your arm. And he stretches out. He heals them on the Sabbath. And immediately it says the Pharisees left, joined with Herodians, who had traditionally been enemies, and they begin plotting his murder to kill him. Mm-hmm. Think about it. He heals somebody's arm on the Sabbath, and the leaders go, he is a, He's breaking the rules. He's breaking the Sabbath. We need to kill him. What kind of God is that? Twisted is twisted, very twisted. Okay, he was called to do a special work. The Lord gave him his message. Did he go to the priests? Did he go to the priests and rulers and ask if he might proclaim the message? No. God put him away from them that he might not be influenced by their spirit and teaching. He was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight, uh, make straight the highway. This is the very message that must be given to our people. We are near the end of time. And the message is, clear the king's highway. Gather out the stones. Raise up the standard for the people. The people must be awakened. It is, it is no time now to cry peace and safety. We are exhorted to cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions in the house of Jacob their sins. Mm. It's a time to prepare. Why are we? What are we preparing for? For Jesus' return. Yeah, are we? Are we making our hearts ready? John says that when He comes, we will be changed to be like Him when He comes. Or we'll already be like Him. We're already going to be like Him if we're doing the work preparing the way for the Lord. Revelation chapter 7, the four angels are holding back the four winds. Hold, hold, hold. Until until something happens. People are sealed. Until the people of God are sealed in their forehead. What does that mean?
2: They're so firmly grounded. They're, they're healing like inside.
0: They're, they're
2: grounded in
0: the Word. They're so settled into the truth about God both intellectually and spiritually. Their characters have been so healed that nothing can shake them from it. And so Revelation 12 describes them as these are they who, who do not love their life so much as they would shrink from death. They've been changed. They've been regenerated. We've been transformed. we become like... Christ in character. That's preparing the way. Somebody read
3: question three for us. What role do we see for the disciples in calling others to follow Jesus? And what does that tell us about our own calling?
0: Yeah, When I thought about that question about calling Jesus, I wanted to ask the class, when we call others to follow Jesus, what are we calling them for or what are we calling them to? When you go to call someone to follow Jesus, what are you calling them for?
1: Give their hearts
0: to You're calling them to give their hearts, but for what purpose? For what are you calling them? Yes.
1: I guess as I looked through this lesson this morning, I, I was thinking how many things I've read lately that either came from the church or Christianity in general were the approach, and down below where it says, after Andrew spent a little time with Jesus, he not only believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he immediately did what the Master expects every disciple to do. Spread the joy. That was almost a... How do you put those two together? He expects me to share that joy, and I think that approach, that paradigm, is used so much in our Christian writings that we that we lose touch with what we are supposed to be sharing. I wrote down below: Am I going to tell them? It says right at the bottom: What would you say about Jesus that could make someone be interested in mm-hmm. following him? And I wrote: What I say, what he expects you to do, which is the approach through school and through a lot of our, our writings, or would I talk to them about who
0: he is? Yeah, and how, much, how, how often is the presentation of Christ started out with a whole bunch of beasts? Mm-hmm. Or burning hellfire? Repent, lest you burn in hell forever. But we've got good news. What's the good news? If you do all these things and accept this blood payment that he's done for you, then God won't torture you forever. Is that bringing greater comfort or greater fear?
2: When I read that, when it said, what does the Master expect us to do, every disciple to do, I looked at it as we live in a world of so much sadness, um, wars, illness, all this. There's so little happiness out there that I look at it that all Christ expects me to do is tell them what Christ has done for me in my life. How, How have I dealt with the sadness or the illness or whatever in my life? how much it means to me to have that relationship with God that He gets me through all these things, that I can have that peace to live in the world that we live in today. It means so few people have that peace and contentment in their life. They're searching for just peace. There's so much stress. There's, I mean, Where do you find the peace? And that's what I look at just when I meet people saying what Christ has done for me in my life, how I've found this peace.
0: Excellent. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so then, when you go out, to, the personal testimony, uh, excellent. So, and somebody says, okay, so what do you say to somebody if they ask you, well, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus?
1: It means to come out of hiding.
0: <laughs> Explain that.
1: Well, ever since Adam, we have been hiding behind our trees. We're not too certain about this kind of God, and we're, we, we may peek every now and then, but we're almost half certain He's going to change us in some way we don't want or cause something in our life we're not sure of, and or hurt us in some way, and we still believe the lie of Satan, that God doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's trying to keep the good things from you. He's just trying to make you live some sort of an awful life, and that's what it takes to get to heaven. you know, give up anything you ever wanted to follow Him. And when you see God the way He really is, as reflected in Jesus' life, and in the Bible, and in nature, you find that, he is safe you can come out from behind your tree in whatever shape you are poor, blind, naked,
0: pitiable so it means to follow Jesus to be freed from fear mm-hmm. to be changed mm-hmm. yes I think to, to follow Jesus first means to be teachable do you think that, uh, that it would be commonly seen by non-Christians in the world that Christians are easily teachable <laughs> I'm not saying we shouldn't be. I'm just, I agree with you. We should be. I have a teachable and humble spirit. Absolutely. But is that what's commonly represented by Christians? No. Oh. No. Narrow
1: mindedness is commonly.
0: Narrow mindedness, I heard over there. Yeah. Um, read the green question at the bottom. Same, same day.
2: If you were to tell someone about Jesus, what would you say? How deep is your experience with the Lord? What would you say about Jesus that could make someone be interested in following him?
0: Okay, and you've already shared with us that your experience with Jesus. I think that's one of the most powerful things. Anybody else have thoughts about that? What would you say?
3: Just to elaborate on, on that, um, you know, in my, in my therapy practice, my, my most powerful form of advertising is a, a patient that is rehabbed successfully. They go out and tell their friends and family. <coughs> You probably experienced the same thing in your practice. Uh, there are there are few things more powerful than than someone than someone who has been healed, transformed, changed to go out and tell someone you need to go talk to this guy or you need to go see this guy.
0: I, I think that's perfectly said and segues so nicely into what Christ said. Christ said, "As the Father has sent me, so send I you." Now, what did the Father send Christ to witness? or testify about. Yeah, and, and you all say that, but I just want to run down the evidence because I want this nailed down so there's no confusion in our minds. It's, its primary mission, John eight twenty-seven 27-29. They did not understand that he was telling them about his Father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. So whose words are he speaking according to Christ? His the words of the Father. Uh, John twelve forty nine and 50. For I did not speak my, of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that His command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Again, He's telling us He's speaking, representing the Father. John 17, 4-6. I have brought you glory on the earth. This is Christ praying to His Father now. I have brought you glory on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Revelation 12, 17. So we got this message. Christ's primary testimony of His life was about? His his about his father. Now, you interpret to me this, this, uh, this Revelation passage. Then the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, what did we just to say the testimony of Jesus was? His primary testimony of his life was? The truth about his father. Is that how we interpret Revelation 12, 17? Mm -hmm. That the last eight people who the dragon is enraged with are those who have the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Or do we interpret it differently?
3: It's those who observe the Sabbath. Mm -hmm.
0: What's the traditional interpretation? the spirit of prophecy. Could it be that the last day generation, the one group of people who enrages the dragon, who gets the dragon mad to go off and attack, are those who not only appreciate the the love of God, His commandments written in the heart, the, the covenant experience, but also represent the truth about the Father, as Christ did.
2: I cannot tell you how many ministers I have asked this question. Did they name the testimonies after this text? In other words, Anything could be the test if they name it that. You know, just because we call it the Testament of Jesus, that's the Spirit of Prophecy. Well, yeah, so we named her writings the Test Spirit of Prophecy because it's the Testament of Jesus.
0: Where do they get that uh, idea that the, the Spirit of Prophecy, in other words, the gift, the prophetic gift, would be a mark of the end-time church? Where, where do they get that uh, idea from? Anybody know? Revelation 19.10. Revelation 19.10 says and this is the NIV, and it's consistent with King James. It says, At this I fell at the feet and wor- to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you, with your brothers, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And they say, Ah, see, there's a Bible interpretation that... that- but I'm going to read to you out of the Good News translation. Tell me if this makes any difference for you. I found out, fell down at his feet and, to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a servant together with you and with your fellow believers. All those who hold to the truth that Jesus revealed worship God. For the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. Oh, wow.
2: There you go. But the word prophecy means to speak for God. So it doesn't, I mean, your own personal testimony is that.
0: For the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. Which do you think is more accurate or likely to be the true meaning? That the sign, the testimony of Jesus, is the truth about his Father. As the Father sent me, so send I you. And the dragon was enraged with this group of people who had the commandments, the law of love written in their hearts, and held to the testimony of Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus is what? The truth that Jesus revealed that inspired the prophets. And what truth inspires the prophets? Isn't it the truth about God Himself? Isn't that the ultimate truth, the ultimate good news? Well, did our founding members of our church see it this way? Well, I think one key person did. Uh, A lot of the founders around her may not have. But uh, Christ Object Lessons 4.15. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of His character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of His glory, the light of His goodness, mercy and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of His character of love. Amen. That is the message.
2: We seldom hear quotes like that.
0: Yes. That's what
2: we need to hear more of.
0: Do we want to talk about why? (laughs) (laughs) Or do we want to go out and take the message? I mean, it's our privilege. We have an opportunity. Remember the prophecy in Matthew about the the ten virgins. Five of them were wise. Five of them were foolish. How many were sleeping? We are asleep. Our church is slumbering. It's not that they're the foolish. I'm not saying that. The five wives were sleeping too. But we need to wake up to do our job to go out and meet the bridegroom to prepare the way for the Lord to prepare the way for the bridegroom to come and what is it that enrages the dragon what is it he does not want to see do you think he wants to see the truth about God proclaimed effectively no, no he doesn't care if we proclaim I'm going to tell you he does not care if we proclaim the Sabbath he does not care if we proclaim the state of the dead he does not care if we proclaim the truth about a healthful living and tithing
1: but all of those things are the truth about God too
0: not necessarily. Those who put Christ on the cross ran home.
2: Christ is in your heart. You experience the blessings of walking with Him. You, your ethical
0: you. Yeah, but the point is, you can teach all those things. Be double tithe payers, sanctuary believers, tithe, uh, diet uh, health conscience observers, Sabbath keepers, and still crucify Christ.
2: Right, but that doesn't mean that those doctrines are uh, a barrier.
0: Uh, to understanding it depends on how they're presented. If the Sabbath is presented, as often is the case, the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. There is no reason for Sabbath versus any other day of the week except God, the one who is the power, full authority of the universe, has declared this day, and he puts it out there for a test to see who you will choose. And if you don't choose him, well, then he will have to execute punishment upon you. If you present the Sabbath like that, is it a day of freedom anymore? No. Is it the day that represents the true character of God, present the truth in love, leave people free? Or does it present God in a distorted light, an arbitrary God? Yeah. One of Satan's allegations against God, his allegations that God is severe, unforgiving, exacting, and arbitrary. What's arbitrariness mean? It means that he does things without reason. There are no reasons for it other than he's the one in charge and he has a right to do it, so he does it whims- whimsically.
2: But when you fall in love with God and his, your heart is filled with his love, you want to obey him. And uh, out of that love comes the obedience So these other things that you're speaking of.
0: I'm not suggesting these doctrines are wrong. I'm suggesting when they're disconnected from the central truth, about God himself. That, see, Satan doesn't care if we present the Sabbath as long as we present it disconnected from the truth about God. He doesn't care if we present the state of the dead as long as we present it disconnected from the state from the truth about God. See, we can have all our little doctrines lined up in nice little rows that we can get our Bible texts out and we can proof text you to death with the, with the text and we can have people converted to a system of organized beliefs and never come to know the truth about God. Amen. Amen. And that's the problem. And without that knowledge... What is life eternal? John seventeen three? To know God. To know God.
2: Okay, now let me ask you this then. Yes. Can you know God and love Him supremely and not do any of those things?
0: Yes, you can.
2: Absolutely. Really.
0: Romans chapter two, verse, starting in verse twelve. Those who have not heard the law but do by nature the I'm things home contained home. in the law. Oh, but all, you, you asked the question in a very general way. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't ask. Now
2: I'm asking, so we're not teaching somebody now about the love of God. We all know the love of God. We have raise raised as an Adventist. Do
0: we? Can no. We, no.
2: we do. We do. Can we, assumption. we? I hope after being in this class for two years, I know and love God. That's okay. That's now, can I do that and not follow what I know Pleases him. That's all you I'm answered asking. your own question. The highest of, uh, form of uh, expression is, of obedience. is obedience.
0: Of course. Right. Of course. I'm not suggesting it, but the point is actually, if, it's, if, the, if you know God truly and know what his methods are, his principles, the way he designs his universe, uh, his character, then you automatically, your heart becomes one with his heart. Your thoughts emerge with his thoughts. Your desires become transformed to be his desires. And you live his life because it's what you want to do, okay? So of course you obey. But the point is there's a false system out there that can have all the right doctrines disconnected from the truth about God yes, that's true. and so like, my point was simply, the final message of mercy to lighten the world, to repair our hearts and minds, to be one with God to meet Him when He comes is the truth about God Himself and so we have a job, and I'm not suggesting we don't teach the Sabbath, I'm suggesting that we teach the Sabbath connected to the truth about God Amen. and only connected to the truth about God we teach the state of the dead only connected to the truth about God. And we stop trying to proof-text people to get to death with simply showing that the, that, the, the, that our particular position on this doctrine is right because people are won over to the system because the evidence of the, of the truth is persuasive. But they never come to see the beautiful character of God as revealed in Christ. And therefore, there are those three levels of obedience. Remember the three levels of obedience? Level one. Now I'll use the metaphor when I was a child. My mother had a rule in the house that I had to brush my teeth. And if I didn't brush my teeth as a child, I would get punished. Well, naturally, as a child, I didn't want to get punished, so I brushed my teeth. But as I grew older, Mom sat me down one day and said, Son, it breaks my heart that you only do this because I threaten you with punishment. I just long for the day that you'll grow up and do these things because you want to do them. It breaks my heart that you don't love me enough. And that touched my heart. So mom never had to threaten me to brush teeth again. And I started brushing my teeth because I love my mother and all that she's done for me. Now, I I grew up and went to college. And and in college, in medical school, I was brushing my teeth one day. And and one of my uh, roommates saw me and said, what are you doing over there? I'm brushing my teeth. Why are you doing that? Well, my mother has a rule. (laughs) And if I don't do this, she's going to come punish me. Would mom be proud? How about if I said, well, I love my mom, and if she finds out I'm not brushing my teeth, well, she'll be hurt, and I don't want to hurt her. (laughs) Would she be proud? You see, Christians, well, God has rules. If we don't do them, he will punish. So I I obey the rules, because I don't want to get punished. Hopefully we'll grow up at some point and recognize. You know, he, he had those rules because he loves us and he wants to protect us. Wow, thank you, God, for, for, for setting that guideline for me to keep me out of trouble when I was such an immature person. Praise you for that. I love you. And I'm going to do these things now because I love you. And do you think God says, well, that's the way I want it. I want you to do it simply because you love me. Why are you doing these things? Well, I love God and I don't want to hurt him. And I know what would disappoint him and hurt him. So I don't want to do it. Or do you think he wants us to come to the point where we actually agree with him? We understand, we appreciate His methods, His principles, and intelligently say, you know what, even if God, now that I understand, now that my mind has been enlightened, now that I see the reasons and purposes of God, I'm in total agreement, and I would do it even if He didn't tell me. Isn't that where He wants to bring us to? And this is the level of obedience, and this level of obedience can never be achieved as long as we focus on the rules, and as long as we focus on the doctrines, disconnected from the truth about God Himself. And it's only as we bring these things back into that that harmony, that connection, that we can bring people to this higher state of being. And it cannot be achieved by rules, obeyed and applied and memorization of facts. It has to be brought by teaching people to think and to reason. Come, let us reason together. We have to weigh out the pros and cons, think through the value. And by the way, this is the reason the tree was placed in the garden. This was the reason the tree was in the garden. A lot of people think the tree was an arbitrary test of obedience. Are you going to obey, me or the devil? The tree was there for two reasons. One, it was a protection. You realize before Adam sinned, he was the governor of this planet. He was the ruler of this planet. Satan was not free to roam this planet because Adam was the governor and ruler of this planet. He could only approach him at that tree. So they were free from harassment on this whole planet except at that tree. So it was there to protect them. Number two, it was there for their development, for their growth. They had, at some point, in order for them to grow, in order for them to be so settled into the truth that they could not be moved, had to be confronted with the issues, weigh them out, think them through, and come to their own conclusion and make that choice, or they'll never grow up. And so the tree was placed there for an opportunity for them to hear in the most gentle and least threatening way possible, allow them to consider the issues and make a decision for their own maturation, settling into the truth, so they cannot be moved. That, it was there for their development. The same thing that's happening with us today. Okay, a bottom of a Monday's lesson, there's a, there's a sentence in the paragraph there. Um, in Monday's lesson, it says, The point cannot be repeated enough. The Lord demands the whole heart. <laughs> the Lord demands the whole heart. Um, do you like that phrasing? No. no.
3: Would
0: would you would you hear it differently if it was expressed this way, if we substitute the Lord requires the whole heart. Would that sound a little different? No. No? How about it is a necessity it is a necessity for your healing and restoration for you to give him your whole heart. Is that different? It is. It is a necessity. It cannot, we cannot be healed. It is not possible for God to do what He wants in our life. It's not possible for Him to restore us, to regenerate us, to recreate us, if we hold our hearts away from Him. Is it? <laughs> and so the demand, though, language suggests, though, more of an arbitrary dictatorship and controlling force rather than the reality and the real truth, which is our condition is such that the only way we can be healed, restored, saved, saved, regenerated, is by giving God our whole heart. Mm-hmm. So that's a necessity. It is a, it is a requirement. Not arbitrarily imposed by God. Not because he's a power monger and says, well, no, if you don't give me the whole heart, well then forget it. I'm not going <laughs> Nope, nope. I have to have it all or nothing. All or nothing. <laughs> no, it's because it's not possible for us to be healed if we hold back from God. If we haven't yes. given the whole heart, we haven't given anything.
1: But it is attractive to me for the, with the idea that God is a jealous God, that He that He wants me and all of me, um, which is not the same as this, but it, it there's a, it, it's not that He's just sitting there, not caring whether I give my heart or not. He desires me because that's my that's my best. Is if He if He um is jealous for all of me.
0: Now I understand. I understand. No, I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. That we, we experience that God loves us so much, He has this desire for us, this passion for us. Persuasion and I think that's... That persuasion that wounds. Absolutely. Uh, somebody read the last paragraph in Tuesday's lesson.
3: Despite our fallen nature, despite our faults and our weaknesses, despite the fact that we are like Peter, that we, like Peter, are sinful, God does not abandon us. How natural it would be for any of us in the presence of the divine to say, quote, "Depart from me." Under the blood of the cross, we can abide in the presence of God. Under the blood of the cross, we can be His disciples.
0: Any takers on interpreting that language for us? I have no idea what, that means. what say that, Alan. I have no idea what that means. Under the blood of the cross, what does it say? We can abide in His presence, and under the blood of the cross, we can be His disciples.
1: <laughs>
0: you see, that's, that's, that's very meaningful language to a lot of people. Yes?
3: That suggests, again, what the point you made about God's character, that the only way we can get to God, in even from hurting us, is to go through Jesus.
0: Ah, Okay. Yes, and so the suggestion is we can stand and abide in God's presence because Jesus stands between us and God, protecting us from God by His blood. Mm -hmm. Do you get that imagery from that? That was suggested just now. Do you like that imagery? Does the Bible support that we need Jesus to stand between us and the Father to protect us from the Father? Mm -hmm. Now, that's not what it supports. But do we need Jesus between us and the Father to reconcile us to the Father? Well, yes! We're not taking Jesus out from His role But the role is a completely different role if we have Jesus up there protecting us from someone who's mad and angry, than Jesus as God's ambassador, his envoy, his representative to bring to us what we need to bring us back into union with God. Isn't that a different picture? Well, how do we know which way it is? Well, the Bible tells us. Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, us. who's for us? God. God. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? Who is it that accuses Christ Jesus? No, He is at the Father's side and is also, as in addition, in addition to, is also interceding for us. Well, if it's He's also interceding for us, He's interceding for us in addition to who? God. 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 The Father is interceding for us. Whoa. Have we often taught it that way? No. But that's what the Bible teaches. John chapter 16, Jesus said, I will not pray the Father for you because... The Father himself loves you. I mean, the Bible is clear. Everywhere you go, God has always been on our side. He does not need the blood of his Son to get him to our side. I'm just going to say it symbolically right now. We need, however, the blood of Christ for us to be able to get on God's side. Now, what does that mean, the blood of Christ? Is he Red corpuscles? Red corpuscles? Oh, pardon? His pardon?
1: healing remedy.
0: His healing his remedy. Love
1: rewritten in our
0: heart. His law of love written in our heart. And another way to say the law of love is His character, which Christ came and perfectly reproduced in humanity, and the Holy Spirit now takes from what is Christ and makes it known to us, is what Christ said. It's good for you that I go, because I'm going to send the Comforter. And when the Comforter comes, he's going to not speak on his own account, he's going to speak what he hears. He's going to take what is mine and make it known to you. Well, what is it that Christ has that we need to have made known to us? The God's character, the truth about God, His character, and the new covenant experiences. I will write my law where? Yeah. In the heart and mind, we become partakers of the divine, divine nature. The nature of God is. Love. love, Romans five five he pours his love into our hearts. The whole thing is all consistent all the way through. Christ came to restore God's character in the species. Christ now becomes the source through which the Holy Spirit draws to reproduce his character in all of us. And thus it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. How do we know this is what the blood symbolizes? Christ said in John chapter 6, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, how many think that's talking real red corpuscles here, real literal blood? How many times when we read the, read the text and the phrases and the wonderful Christian expressions, saved by the blood, power of the blood, how many times do we immediately think literal, shedding his blood on the cross, blood? Isn't that what we almost always think? Mm-hmm. It is wrong. Stop thinking that. It is the blood that you can ingest that Christ has wants you to, to internalize, the blood that you can take in. And you have to say, well, then, what kind of blood is that? The life is in the blood. It is the life of God we are to ingest, to internalize, to partake of, to feed upon—the very character, nature, love, methods of God Himself.
3: Yes. We're well, very close to the communion service. Last week. And growing up, um, the, the idea of unless you participate in communion, you will participate in Christ, was presented. This is very much a, a ritual um, basis for for salvation.
0: That's very common across Christianity, actually. And Isaiah 1, if we read our word, as Tina suggested a while ago, that many people don't, we we would be protected from that because Isaiah 1 starts out. In fact, we'll just jump to Isaiah 1 to to pick up on this point. Isaiah chapter 1. I think it starts in verse 10. Yep, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, and it's speaking to the children of Israel, but they're using the metaphor of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, of the fat, of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. When you come to meet with me, who has asked this this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings and incense of detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocation, I cannot bear your evil assemblies uh, I'll, I'll stop right there you're getting the point who asked them to do the sacrifices who asked them to assemble who asked them to do st- new moons and sabbaths and feast days I mean who gave them all these instructions but he was disgusted with it and in Romans I mean in, the, in verse 18 just right around the same chapter verse 18 after he berates them on and on and on for all this stuff he says come let us reason together though your sins are a scarlet boy so why does he hate it all? Verse 13. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. In other words, these are all symbols, teaching tools, that are designed to get you to reason and think, and you're to understand the meaning behind the symbol. When you just bring the symbol without understanding the meaning, it disgusts me. Stop it. Stop singing that song, Power in the Blood. I'm tired of it. It's wearing my soul out, and I'm sick of hearing it. Amen. <laughs> what I want is for you to understand where the real power is. Is the power of the gospel to change lives. The truth about my character revealed by my son. That's the power. Is there power in the blood or is the power in the one who shed his blood?
3: <laughs>
0: See, the power has never been in the blood. It's been in the life of of God Himself. And He's telling us, stop! Stop all this symbol, symbolic communion stuff unless you understand the meaning. If you understand the meaning, do it. It's designed to awaken in your mind. The symbols are designed to, to bring us back to a knowledge of God. But if we just do it symbolically without thinking, it shuts the mind down and I think it sickens God. And we have the, the evidence here for it. Wednesday's lesson, The Call of Levi Matthew, the Tax Collector person on the fringe of society. Oh, by the way, just before I go to Wednesday's lesson, it says, so, after our discussion of the blood, when we have been recreated in heart, recreated in mind, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The character of Christ has been reproduced. We've been so settled in the truth that we cannot be moved, both intellectually and spiritually, to be like Jesus. Will there be any problem then for us to abide in God's presence or be His disciple? It's
2: like the unfallen worlds. Eventually the tree was taken away.
0: So the point of that text... The, under the blood of the cross, we can abide in Christ's presence. Okay? When our characters have been healed, when we've been regenerated, we've been restored, we're back in harmony with him in heart-mind principle. When his law of love is written in the heart, we can abide in his presence. That's what it means. Okay, so Wednesday, Levi Matthew, a person in the Francis society, a wor- uh, an apparent worldling, is called to be one of God's disciples, one of Christ's disciples. From this lesson, from this observation of, of calling Matthew, is there anyone who is, quote, too wicked unquote to be called to be one of God's disciples no. No. well that was an unenthusiastic response <laughs> <laughs> is there anybody too wicked to be called to be one of Christ's disciples
3: no, no. no. powerful uh, witness is, is yeah. someone who is exceedingly corrupt and then is transformed.
0: Is there anyone whose life history, that wickedness of their life history is too checkered to be redeemed by God? No. Look no. no. Manasseh. No. no. He said, look at Manasseh. Manasseh is a great example from the Old Testament. Thursday's lesson. Somebody read the second paragraph for us. Thursday.
1: So, as we saw this week, they had some biblical evidence at that time for believing that Jesus was the Messiah. A study of the gospel reveals how much of the work and ministry of Jesus was still unknown to them, especially the most important part of his work, his death on the cross. As we know, right up until the end, and even after, they had grave misconceptions about what was to come.
0: Yes. Did they have, and so questions, think this through. Fact is, they did have grave grave misconceptions, right? (laughs) Did they have grave misconceptions because Christ failed to share with them the truth of what was going to transpire? No, no, no. So he, he spoke the truth to them. How many, how many times do we have recorded? Multiple times, right? Multiple times he said, the Son of Man is going to die and he's going to you know, rise on the third day. Multiple times he told them this, but yet they didn't understand. So even though Christ is telling the truth, why didn't they get it? It wasn't what they were warning. So previous bias... Tradition, preconceived ideas, prejudices, all these things that were already in their heads were obstructions to seeing the truth As even though it's being presented to them. They couldn't see it. They couldn't understand it. As Christians, are we in danger of this happening to us? Could we be projecting the truth about God as revealed in Christ because of our traditions, our preconceived ideas, our biases, our prejudices, Well, we've been taught our whole life? By I mean, imagine how hard it must have been for some of the kids, or some of the priests and Levites that have taught them the whole life what to expect. And, well, I can't go against Dad. I mean, Dad couldn't be wrong. I mean, look, he's been a holy minister in the sanctuary his whole life, and he's such a humble, decent guy. I mean, he couldn't have taught me wrong, could he? How hard would it have been for a child to think on their own, uh, even if it was an adult child, uh, when their dad has been so committed their whole life to a particular message? Do we have trouble with that today? Thinking independently from those who tutored us. Are we supposed to think independently from those who tutored us? Are we supposed to think in reason for ourselves, come to our own conclusion? Let me tell you my personal conviction that the final. Piece of truth to be recovered to complete the Reformation. You remember the Reformation is reforming the church back to the apostolic truth. And it started with Martin Luther primarily when he began objecting to the abuses and the misrepresentations. And so he started with the priesthood of believers. Salvation by grace through faith rather than through a system of works. And more truth was recovered. We got the truth about baptism by immersion. More truth was recovered. And we got the truth about the Sabbath and the state of the dead and some of these other things. But the final truth in my opinion To be recovered is the truth about God himself as revealed in Christ that we do not need one member of the Godhead in heaven pleading and working on another member of the Godhead to convince that member of the Godhead to be kind, gracious, forgiving, and loving. And essentially every Christian church still has some distortion about this relationship with Jesus who died to appease his father, to assuage his father, to beg off his father, to pay a ransom to his father, is up there pleading, hiding us from the wrath of his father. This lie, persists in every Christian denomination and I think it's the last piece of truth to be recovered that will prepare people to finish the Reformation and have a group of people on the earth that will enrage the dragon who have both the commandments of God and the true testimony of Jesus. It's all hand somewhere. Yes.
1: It seems like this is one of Satan's ways of taking he's the one that wants us to die. He's gonna die. He wants to take us all with him. So we've kind of shifted our focus
2: to God being the one who, you know, wants us to die when really it's Satan and Jesus is showing Satan, you know, no, this is because
3: of this what I've done and they've given their hearts back to me, you know, they've been reclaimed, they have a right to live.
0: Absolutely. Uh, wonderfully said. It is so true. When you think of intercession traditionally taught, is intercession not traditionally taught with Jesus interceding between us and the Father to, to deal with the Father in some way? Right. But true intercession is as soon as man fell into sin, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit began interceding with the destructiveness of sin itself, holding back the four winds of strife, the principalities and powers of darkness. He sends his hedge of protection to hold in check. He begins sending his spirit into our own hearts and minds to convict and woo and draw us to hold and check our own carnal characters to keep us from destroying ourselves. He has been interceding with the deadliness of sin. The whole Godhead has been interceding there, as you say, with Satan and evil forces holding them at bay, rather than one member of the Godhead holding the other member of the Godhead at bay. That is a true distortion that we need to get out of our thinking and recognize, wow, if God is for us, who can be against us. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to reveal this truth to us, that if we have seen you, we have seen we have seen Christ, we have seen the Father. May we really appreciate the true meaning of that. May it sink in. May it free us from preconceived ideas, biases, prejudices. The truth is spoken so often and so many times we have preconceived ideas that, like the disciples, we don't get it. Send your Spirit to to open our minds, to push through the, the preconceived ideas and the biases that we can really see your glory, the glory of your character is revealed in Christ and know that you love us and we can trust you and pour your spirit out to heal us and regenerate us, to be like you, that we can witness for you in this world to bring about an end. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.